In this file, I'll be covering the slides on Topic 1 that I wasn't able to finish when we first met. We've discussed some of the ways that psychologists collect data through naturalistic observation, through structured observation, um, and the different designs that they may use to take into account age differences or time differences. The three major approaches in, used in developmental science are cross-sectional approaches in which psychologists study age differences by looking at different groups of children at different ages, the longitudinal approach in which a group of individuals is followed over time, and longitudinal studies may stretch out over months or even decades, and the microgenetic approach. The microgenetic approach is a variation of the longitudinal design in which there is very dense time sampling. Um, that is, individuals are studied who are on the cusp of a particular behavioral change of interest, and their behavior is examined at very frequent intervals. It may be every day, it may be once a week. Uh, one could even consider some studies in which children are evaluated once a month to be microgenetic, but more typically you'll see behavior assayed or tested um, once a day or once a week. Sequential designs combine cross-sectional and longitudinal approaches um, to capitalize on the strengths um, of both and minimize the disadvantages associated with each. What are the advantages of the cross-sectional approach? Researchers can very quickly get enough data to accurately characterize average age differences. Research that can be conducted quickly is usually much less expensive. Um, what may complicate cross-sectional designs, though, um, is that a group of people of a given age may differ from groups of younger or older ages, not because of developmental change, but because of the specific experiences associated with the particular historical or technological context in which they developed. Those are known as cohort effects. So a disadvantage of cross-sectional designs is that what are, in fact, cohort effects may be confused with developmental differences. The longitudinal design um, offers the very great advantage of giving researchers a window into patterns of individual stability, individual change in a given behavioral domain. The disadvantages of longitudinal research are considerable, however. It takes longer to conduct, and it's much more expensive to conduct. 
So with the exception of microgenetic studies, longitudinal studies are seldom conducted without extensive grant support, um, usually from the government, but sometimes from private foundations. Um, so longitudinal research can tell us a great deal about individual differences in development, but it takes a long time to conduct and it's very costly. The other major disadvantage of longitudinal research is that typically there is loss or attrition of subjects. If you start out following the 200 infants who were born in a particular hospital in September 2010, by September 2015, a significant number of those children will no longer live in the area and may not be available for continued study. And if the children who drop out because their families move, because their families become uncooperative, are not representative of the group as a whole, then that can also distort your findings. So selective attrition can have an impact on the interpretability of longitudinal studies. In sequential designs, researchers start with several groups of children at different ages and then follow each of those groups longitudinally. Um, so researchers may be able to characterize, say, um, age differences from age 3 to 15 in just a few years, say in five years, by the way they structure the groups and the frequency with which um, they assess behavior. Um, let's look at a research area um, in which there has been varied and um, personally I think really interesting research for a number of years now. Um, one of the things the developmental researchers um, have always noticed is that mothers and babies typically spend a great deal of time in face-to-face -face contact. There'll be um, mutual gazing, vocalizing with babies cooing and sort of mewing when they're tiny um, and later making speech sounds, um, mothers singing, cooing, imitating what the baby says, speaking. Researchers have also noticed that mothers who are depressed spend much less time in face-to-face -face contact with their babies. Mothers who are depressed may ignore their infant's bids for attention, their infant's bids for interaction, with the result that typically a mother who is seriously depressed ends up with a baby whose behavior reflects her depression, a baby who is less active, who is less responsive, who's less likely to smile, to laugh, um, who ultimately makes fewer attempts at engaging the mother in interaction. Um, 
researchers have also noticed that babies who are sick, um, whether it's because they're born with um, an illness, they develop an illness, or they're malnourished at birth, interact much less with their mothers than do healthy babies. So if you were a psychologist who was interested in studying smiling in infants and the relationship between maternal mental health, infant health, and the emergence of social smiling or smiling um, either in response to another person or as an attempt to get a response from another person, um, how would you go about designing a study to gather information. You would need to decide whether you want to conduct qualitative research in which you are observing behavior but not counting, categorizing, measuring variables, whether you would define variables, collect data on those variables, and correlate your findings on different variables, or whether you would use an experimental design in which some mothers, some babies might receive specific uh, exposure to treatments, to training, to conditions that might change the nature of the interaction. Um, you would need to choose a design. Are you going to study smiling? You're going to study face-to-face -face reaction longitudinally, cross-sectionally, or using a microgenetic design. And you would need to operationalize your variables. If you were conducting experimental research, you would need to operationalize independent variables, variables that you, the researcher were going to manipulate or control, um, as well as one or more dependent variables. The variable, the outcome variable that you're interested in, um, occurrence of smiling, frequency of smiling, duration of smiling, age at first smile. You would have to come up with techniques to measure these variables. If you're doing correlational research, um, you similarly would have to operationally define your variables, define the procedures by which you're going to measure variables, and determine which you think are predictors and um, which are the important outcome variables. Science seeks to describe behavior, explain the causes of behavior, and predict behavior. For psychologists to conduct research that enables them to explain and predict behavior, they have to develop measures that are reliable. Um, to do that so that if I describe maternal depression, another researcher can replicate my procedures so that when they're measuring maternal depression, they're really measuring what I was measuring rather than, say, maternal education or social class. Um, my procedures have to be very precisely defined. Um, in addition to being operationally defined, 
our measures have to be valid. That is, they have to really measure what we think they're measuring. So reliable measures are measures that are stable, assuming the underlying trait that we think we're measuring hasn't changed. We should get pretty similar measurements with repeated measurements. Our measurements have to be defined precisely in terms of uh, how we're coding behavior, um, what questions we're asking if we're asking people to fill out a self-report instrument or uh, some other type of psychological sale, scale. And they have to be valid. They have to measure what we say they're measuring. We also speak about internal validity and external validity of research findings. Um, internal validity refers to the accuracy of the inferences that we make about relationships between variables. If I observe that there is um, a correlation between factors, I, my results have internal validity um, if, in fact, there's the relationship is due to those variables and not the operation of something else. I'm not observing a spurious correlation. External validity refers to the generalizability of findings. If I find a relationship between um, number of times a week children in New Brunswick are read to by their parents and their reading scores in second grade, I have a generalizable result if I can find a similar, not identical, result in another similar city. If I go to Perth Amboy, do I get the same result or do I find that there's no relationship? If um, I go to Paramus, will it be the same? I'm one could ask whether the public school population in Paramus is like the public school population in Perth Amboy in New Brunswick. Um, and differences that you might predict you would find might argue that results obtained in one area might not be obtained in another school district. So even when there is internal validity to particular research findings, there may be limits on external validity. Um, external validity doesn't mean with any variation of technique, with any variation of um, the nature of subjects studied, you would find the same result. It means if you did a very similar experiment with very similar, very similar study with um, similar participants, in similar settings, you would find very similar results. Um, if you do a correlational study, uh, you assess maternal health, 
you assess maternal mental health, you assess infant health, and you've operationally um, defined all of your variables appropriately, and you find that the healthier a baby is and the fewer symptoms of anxiety or depression that a new mother shows, the younger an infant is when it begins to smile to social stimuli. What kinds of conclusions can you draw from those positive correlations? Um, could you conclude that training mothers to be more responsive to their infant's vocalizations and facial expressions causes smiling to emerge earlier? Not from a significant correlation from research that uses an experimental manipulation, randomly assigning some mothers to a training intervention, randomly assigning other mothers to a no training um, condition, you might be able to reach that conclusion. Um, but based on significant correlations between infant health, maternal health, and age of infant smiling, um, all you've done is confirmed that a relationship that you thought you might find was in fact found. To make stronger conclusions, to make causal conclusions, to make causal inferences, you have to conduct an experiment with randomized assignment of mother-infant pairs um, and with appropriate controls. Um, let's look at some research that has actually been done on infant smiling. Um, your book in early chapters uh, includes the stories about the Romanian orphans adopted in the 1980s. Um, this first study by, uh, I believe her first name was Marina Tautermanova, um, was actually conducted in a Romanian orphanage. Um, in this study, infants were maintained in a particular nursery and used for more or less benign experiments. As the researcher says, the subjects were healthy infants who were kept permanently for observation purposes. The infants had two hour-long periods of observation daily for two days. Um, following each other, beginning at eight weeks and then repeated at four-week intervals until they were 24 weeks old. What kind of design is this? I hope you came up with the answer um, longitudinal, uh, probably microgenetic. That would be the correct answer. Um, on the first of these two days of observations, a researcher stood about a meter away from the 
infants and recorded their behavior on a clipboard, maintaining a passive face, not vocalizing to the infant, not cooing or speaking to the infant, not responding to the infant's bids for attention, bids for interaction. On the second day, the researcher bent over the infant and when the infant looked at the researcher would nod, uh, smile, and vocalize to the infant. So the experimental condition was a passive unresponsive observer on day one and a responsive interacting observer on day two. These were termed distant presence and close presence. And what they found was that in both experimental conditions, the length of time, the average length of time that infants smiled um, increased as the infants got older. Um, at eight weeks in the distant present condition, the average duration of smiles was about a fifth of a minute. In the close or interacting condition, the average duration of smiles at eight weeks was two-thirds of a minute. Um, by 24 weeks, even in the distant condition, infants were smiling for almost a full minute. In the close condition, infant average smile duration was nearly three minutes. Um, they broke down the data for these hour-long periods um, into 10-minute intervals. And what they found was that most of the smiling behavior in both conditions um, occurred early or in the first and second intervals. And the smiling behavior, even in the close condition, habituated over the hour. Um, Todoramanova found very strong individual differences between the children. And again, the initial 10 minutes were very important in this. Um, she concluded that individual infants' differences in responsiveness and length of smiles are likely to generate very different emotional reactions from mothers and other caretakers. This research, I hope it's obvious to you, um, wouldn't be considered ethical today. Um, this country has very, very few orphanages because we learned that infants don't thrive in orphanages. Infants need the intimate, reliable, regular contact with one or two caretakers that allows them to form strong, affectionate bonds with those one or two caretakers. And that sort of care is very seldom available, um, even in well-administered orphanages. Um, the second study is more recent. Lavelli and Vogel are two researchers who've done a great deal of work on infant smiling, um, including some work that does examine the impact of maternal health on 
what are called dyadic face-to-face -face interactions. A dyad is two people. So the mother-infant dyad is frequently um, the object for research on infant smiling, maternal smiling. Um, theories of emotion, theories of self-regulation uh, vary a great bit. In their multiple positions, but one easy way to characterize them is that researchers who focus on emotional expression as being much more the result of um, innate emotional triggering and expression mechanisms believe that infants have an ability to regulate interactions with their caretakers that is evident early in that facial responsiveness, vocal responsiveness, mutual gaze are important ways of regulating that interpersonal interaction with the intimate caretaker. Um, the opposing position is that the ability to regulate the interaction with an adult loving caretaker develops much later. So the intent of this study was to document how face-to-face -face interactions between healthy mothers and healthy babies change in the first 14 weeks of life. Um, these researchers work from a dynamic systems point of view. Dynamic systems theory basically posits that developmental change results from the sudden destabilization of previous stable patterns of behavior. Um, multiple factors contribute to developmental change. Their prediction was that interdiad differences would emerge around two months. Um, the basis for that um, is what's known as the eight-week transition. Um, at about eight weeks in a healthy, well-nourished baby, frontal lobe connections come into play uh, much more than they have earlier in behavior. Um, and the infant begins to have the ability to control more of its musculature on a, a volitional rather than a reflexive basis. Now, early in infancy, the neonate has very little voluntary control of its muscles. Um, what neonates can control within hours to days of birth is where they look, how long they look, how they suck, how fast they suck, how long they suck. Face-to-face um, -face interaction with another person is a more complicated um, set of behaviors. So Lavelle and Vogel looked at 16 mother-infant 
diet. They videotape the babies and moms for six minutes once a week from the time the babies were one week old until they were 14 weeks old under two conditions. In one, the mother held the baby in her arms and interacted. And in the second, the baby was propped up on a sofa with pillows and the mother knelt in front of the sofa to interact with the baby. The researchers coded the behavior of both moms and babies and the durations of vocalizations, the durations of smiles were coded. What they found was three fairly stable patterns of joint behaviors. Um, mother or baby um, bidding for attention, so doing something um, to get the attention of the other member of the dyad. Face-to-face um, -face communication, which could be simple gazing, um, mom and baby staring lovingly in each other's eyes or smiling at each other, um, or more active engagement in which there is a back and forth of vocalization, of smiling, of making funny faces. Um, and finally, calming. The infant becomes distressed and the mother um, actively attempts to reduce the infant's distress. What they found was that the nature of face-to-face -face communication changed in the first weeks of life. Initially, babies look and moms look back. So the duration of this simple looking, this simple gazing, increased until week four when babies were propped up on the sofa um, and continued to increase until week six when babies were held in their mother's arms. Active engagement with turn-taking, with clear infant bids for attention emerged in some infants as early as four weeks. By seven weeks of age, on average, it was 60% of face-to-face -face time. At eight weeks of age, two groups of infants emerged. One group of infants continued to increase face-to-face -face interaction time, and one group decreased face-to-face -face interaction time. So they conclude that individual differences in mother-infant dyads in the ways moms and babies interact early in infancy emerge very early. So we're talking about differences emerging at eight weeks. The timing of those differences is consistent with dynamic systems theory, which would suggest that with the eight-week transition, with the greater ability to uh, control motor responses, though it's still very much limited um, to the face, you would begin to see more individual differences. Um, that timing, they suggest, is consistent with the early competence theory. Um, and they have since, as have others, um, extended this research to explore developmental outcomes. Um, for those of you who are interested in autism, um, 
one finding that's emerging from the literature studying maternal infant face-to-face interaction is that with babies who are later diagnosed as autistic, um, not only are there some differences evident relatively early in infancy in the infant behavior, um, mothers and fathers uh, of children who will later become autistic also behave differently. Um, and this is then do parents of children who don't become autistic. Now, that's not assumed to be causal. Rather, it's assumed to be an effect of the child's lower level of responsiveness. Um, so one of the, interv- the early interventions um, that's being suggested and tested is training parents to persist in their bids for infant attention training parents to um, work on establishing and maintaining mutual eye contact with infants, not with you know, waiting until a child is a toddler um, and already uh, diagnosed as having some problem behaviors. Um, Lavelli has recently published uh, some data looking at mothers with diagnoses of depression and general anxiety disorder and uh, bipolar disorder. These are separate groups, not women who are suffering from all three disorders. Um, and comparing them with normal controls. Um, these are mothers who are in active treatment for their disorders and what he's found is that um, the mothers who are being actively treated aren't interacting with their babies uh, dramatically differently from the ways in which the control mothers are interacting. Um, So even where uh, a serious disorder exists, if a mother is getting treatment, if a mother has social support, um, she may be interacting normally with her infants. It's untreated depression, untreated anxiety um, that threatens the mother-infant bond. Um, So looking at these together, um, simple behaviors, moms and babies looking at each other, cooing at each other, smiling at each other, can be studied from different theoretical points of view. Um, Simple behaviors we now know can have really significant developmental effects and individual differences in the way infants behave affect how their adult caretakers, their parents, their babysitters um, treat the infants. Um, Research with children as research with adult subjects is constrained by ethics, morality, and professional principles, as well as law. Um, The first principle, of course, is research should do no harm to children. Um, Secondly, um, parents or guardians must give informed consent. Participants must remain anonymous. 
if participation in research reveals any information that's important to a child's welfare, that has to be disclosed to the parent or caretaker um, and appropriately explained. If there are any negative consequences from research participation, um, there has to be some serious effort made to counteract them. And for children who uh, have the capacity to understand language, the research should be explained to the child participant um, as well as to their parent in terms that the child can understand. So, uh, to summarize Chapter 1, the formal study of child development is relatively recent. Our theories are often based initially on the observations of very attentive parents. Um, and finally, developmental research is conducted like other psychological research according to scientific method, but under ethical constraints that should be even more sensitive because the subjects are precious children.